So it creates a kind of ethical task, right? Where, yeah, of course, it's life is partly about, you know, comforting experiences like, like pleasure and delight. But maybe the ethical task is to kind of create situations, interactions, events where those who take part can all have a share in those kinds of experiences, which adds a, a much more complex practical layer to, to this idea. It's not just a simple notion of, you know, pursuing what clearly makes yourself happy. Welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and today I'm joined here by uh, Dr. Andrew Lambert. Dr. Andrew Lambert is the Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the College of Staten Island, City University of New York. Uh, his research focuses on ethical theory, classical and contemporary Confucian thought, and the philosophy of sport. Today, we're going to kind of be focusing on uh, Confucian thought, and the main question we're dealing with is, how can you lead a good life? Dr. Lambert, absolute joy to have you on the show today. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's great to be here. Uh, so as we look at, you know, how can you lead a good life? Uh, what led you to become a philosopher? And specifically, uh, what led you to the study of Confucian thought? Yeah, well, like most sort of people who do philosophy, I was always curious about the world, you know, asking questions about, you know, where does that come from? I remember when I was a very small child, about five years old, I was cycling with my my dad and down to the local sort of canal or the river. I remember asking him, like, I'm from the UK, like, you know, why does the queen have such power, right? Why does she have such privilege? What has she done to deserve that when like, you know, ordinary people work and don't have like great riches? And, you know, that's just kind of weird thing for a five or six year old to ask, but that's just the way it was, right? So clearly kind of fated to, to be interested in philosophy. Um, as for the sort of my interest in, in sort of non-Western, like Chinese Confucian philosophy, actually, when I finished undergraduate, I went to Japan um, mm. for a couple of years on, I don't know if you've heard of the Japan Exchange Teaching Program, the JET program. Sounds familiar. Which but is yeah, a chance. Yeah, it, it gives uh, new graduates from different countries, native English speakers, the chance to go to Japan and teach uh, English. And basically, I did that as a just an experience, right? Just to see the world. Never been to Asia, obviously. And uh, then I got a scholarship to study philosophy at Kyoto University. Mm. Um, and funnily enough, from from there, I became interested in, in Chinese thoughts. So I swapped my attention to, to China. Mm. I went to China, and I went to graduate school. Came to graduate school in the US, basically to to work specifically on Chinese thought and and ethics and Confucian ethics. Um, so basically my, my path was to go and live in, in Asia, in Japan, in China, and just kind of experience the different kind of social values and the different ways in which familiar interactions, right? How you greet people, how you talk to older people, so really simple everyday things that we all deal with were addressed in different ways by people living in China and Japan yeah. and the kind of curiosity of where does that come from? Why is that? I think sort of led to more kind of textual study, kind of the history of philosophy and, and Confucian thought. Awesome. Yeah, that, and that makes total sense. So, uh, yeah, and I'm pulling here from uh, your paper, and let me bring that up the title. 
uh, from aesthetics to ethics, the place of delight in Confucian ethics. Um, we'll actually leave a link to it uh, below the YouTube video. But um, uh, talk to us a little bit about that paper. What had what did you find specifically unique in the con contribution of Confucian uh, thought to the idea of the good life? Yeah, so th there are a couple of things. Um, you know, obviously everybody at some time or another has an interest in ethics, right? Kind of how do I lead a good life? What is the right thing to do? These really kind of general questions. You would hope so. And just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm a bit too idealistic. Yeah, maybe you're right. Um, so, you know, and different traditions have different answers, right? right. And, and even within traditions, you get different answers. So, you know, you have Aristotle who gives an answer. Immanuel Kant, who is a famous philosopher who has his sort of complex, interesting work on ethics, utilitarianism, um, you know, virtue ethics, all these kind of philosophical schools. And the Confucians have their own answer to that question. But, but they have something else which is kind of interesting, which is, you know, we come from, uh, we by we, I mean kind of Northern European, like Anglo-American, mm -hmm. European, I guess parts of Australasia, um, have a strong sense of individualism, right? That the individual self, the individual person is a real locus of value. Yes. You know, and even metaphysically, right? That the way to think about people is to think about the self as an atomic, self-contained entity, you know, we can ask sort of questions or, or we think about, you know, how do I be authentic? You know, how can, how can I get people to understand my true inner self, right? This idea of like finding, discovering and presenting that, that self. And I would argue, and many people have this view, that in the Confucian tradition, there's much more emphasis on, on the social self and on sociality, which is to say that how we think about ourselves is partly a function of our relationships, right? How we relate to other people. And the easiest way to explain this in the Confucian tradition is to look at the emphasis placed on social roles. So in the classical Confucian texts, like the Analects of Confucius, the Mencius, the, the Shunzi, like three great classical uh, early Chinese thinkers, they all talk a lot about social roles, like especially the family, um, teachers and students, um, rulers, ministers, and they sort of present society partly as an awareness of how we all exist within all sorts of social roles. And these roles are not necessarily equal, right? Mm. Unlike the very like glorious tradition that we belong to, which emphasizes individual equality in the face of difference, respect for difference. The Confucians in some ways have a more pragmatic view that the reality is, you know, it's kind of hard to say in virtue of what people are equal because in almost all of our relationships, there's some pretty important de facto inequality, right? You, you might be a brother or a sister or a sibling, right? And you're older, you're more experienced or you're just bigger and stronger or you're smarter or, or whatever it is, right? Um, or, you know, you're older, you have more, more, more life experience and children are just, you know, in a sense, weaker, less experienced, less wealthy than parents. So natural human interaction, natural human society often features some sorts of inequality. You know, that, that's not new. That's a, in some ways a conservative view. But the idea is, for the Confucians, it's a deeper question of the, the self itself, right, may be partly constructed by 
social considerations, right? That, that who I am is a function of the roles I play and the interactions I take part in. And if that's right, and you know, that's a whole extra question we can go into, then the, <laughs> yeah. answer to, 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 to the, yeah, the answer to the question of, you know, what's the good life like, right? How should I behave? Maybe slightly different from accounts of the good life which start from the assumption of a very strong sense of individuality, a belief in a kind of self-contained atomic self that is different from other selves, other people. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that's the kind of back background. And kind of fill in the answer that I was trying to, to create in this paper and in other work is to say that because the Confucians start from such a strong awareness of social life, right? And that unlike, for example, Immanuel Kant, who thinks that ethics in some sense is transcendent, that the right thing to do is independent of time and place. It's found through the faculty of reason, right? It, it's kind of universal general laws that will always sort of guide your rational judgment. In contrast to that, right, the Confucians seem to think more that the good life, the right thing to do is that which contributes to harmonious interaction, a harmonious society. Harmony is a big, a big concept in Confucian thought. And actually only in the last sort of 10, 15 years have people really started philosophically to, to delve into it and say, you know, what exactly does harmony mean, right? And there are some, so, so basically say harmony is a goal of action. It's a concept through which we can understand the good life. Like we can aim at this. What is it, right? Um, a few easy some metaphors and images that help people understand it. Um, a famous one is music, right? Think of like taking part in a big musical jam or a big concert orchestra, right? You have your role to play, but the way you play it is partly a response to other people, right? And to create the perfect tune requires all sorts of coordination, all sorts of consideration for, for others. And a second one is. Um, cooking, right? Um, how do you make a fantastic dish or a fantastic soup? And, you know, you have to think about your ingredients, how you blend them, how one flavor interacts with another flavor. And, you know, this kind of skillful process, you kind of blend the ingredients to create the, the perfect soup. But notice how in a way there isn't a simple right an answer of what to do, right? Both in the music example and in the, say, the soup making example, it's kind of, I wouldn't say just trial and error, but, you know, what you actually produce is a function of trying to blend different dynamic components, you know, and, and that's very much a Confucian model of a good life, right? You're trying to blend different uh, components and specifically social elements, right? The different social roles, the different people in your social world, try to figure out how you can uh, interact with them in a way that produces the kind of ideal notion of harmony. And, and this paper was really to sort of try to put that within the framework of the experience of delight or joy. Now, we, we know that delight, joy in the Confucian tradition, in the Analects, is, is quite an important idea, right? Music is a big deal for the Confucians. So we also know that they're into social roles and like the importance of social interaction and how you produce good interactions. And if you put them together, you, you kind of get this idea 
that the the way we should think about human social interaction isn't only or isn't necessarily that it's all rule governed, that you should always treat people according to certain moral rules, don't violate the moral rules, but also maybe you can think about approaching social interaction with the question of like, how do I produce a certain kind of effect, right? The effect being the creation of delight, like a shared experience of delight or joy or a sense of ease, a sense of belonging, a sense of having accomplished something through interactions with people. All of these are kind of feelings, emotions, maybe psychological states, which I, I think the Confucians think are very important. And they also put kind of right up there in the kind of top echelon of ethical goals and concepts, right? That they're sort of aiming at this in a way that in traditional Western ethics, we, we talk about aim at the greatest possible good, right? Do the thing that produces the most overall well-being, which is a very kind of dry, abstract way of, you know, demanding we act in a certain way. And it's fair to say the traditional Confucian thought doesn't really have that as an aim, like utilitarianism. It, it does arguably have some version of like the golden rule, but I don't think the kind of strong Kantian deontological ethics is, is really that important to the early Confucians. But what is important, like we said, is this notion of social interaction, the creation of a sense of delight. So that paper is, is really try, trying to explore that idea and, and saying, look at traditional Confucian thought, and they often describe this ideal situation of like a social gathering. Think of it like a dinner party yeah. if you want to, or like a big, like a big ceremony where all the, sort of the, the king and diviners and, and the royal court there. And they're trying to create this kind of uh, experience, this kind of experience of delight. And it's almost like that's their practical goal. And it has some important political implications. Like if you attend one of these big ceremonies and you kind of experience this sense of uh, being part of a great event, you will identify with the king. You'll be more more loyal to the king, right? You'll be a, a, a sort of a, a happy subject. But it also has. We can also abstract it, right, to something that speaks to us today as a kind of a, an ethical framework, like an, an idea of how we should act, right? Um, which I think is interesting because it hasn't really been a big theme in kind of traditional twentieth century uh, Western ethics, right? We've been much more kind of theory based, much more about what rule or principle do I need that will enable me to make the right moral judgment? Well, and, and forgive me for Googling, because uh, I mean, I know I'm just listening here quietly, but my brain is just exploding with fireworks like this is awesome. Thank you. Um, so just to make sure I'm kind of tracking with you, a couple things that have kind of cross reference for me. One is. <laughs> if this was you, I apologize. Maybe this is why your name was familiar to me. Uh, were you on Philosophy Bites? Uh, no. Okay. No. <laughs> they had a con uh, scholar uh, on about uh, Confucianism, and they talked about outer forms corresponding to inner states um, and how in Confucianism, for instance, it's very important to align your mat properly because it's about mm -hmm. creating the proper environment to shape your soul. And uh, I think that's a lot of, you know, there's, there's some correspondence there. Am I tracking with you there? Yeah. And that's actually a great example, specifically because those kinds of famous passages where Confucius says, if the matter isn't properly aligned, 
I'm not going to sit down. Of course, in ancient China, they, they, they sat on mats. It was quite normal. And for a long time, people said, you know, this just shows how kind of backward and kind of conservative the Confucians are, right? This like really stuffy stuff about, you know, how you should align your mat, the order in which you should eat things, the names by which you have to address people. God, how boring, right? Aren't we so much better in a sort of liberalized society? And it's only more recently that you get a more sort of sympathetic, thoughtful reading of those passages, which just, just like you say, maybe they're saying, you know, take care about your social interactions, right? Take care to arrange the elements around you in such a way that it sort of brings these effects to, to it, right? It affects people in the right ways. And so that that's a great example of how, you know, maybe the Confucians were saying something more interesting than we originally thought they were, where we thought they were just being very conservative, a bit backward, you know, a bit, a bit oppressive and so on. But that's, I mean, that's the blindness of our perspective. Um, even, and it's, you've referenced it a couple of times, and I had this down as a question to ask you. Um, obviously, we are, uh, from a Confucian perspective, and I think rightly, uh, as a corrective to Western thought, we are more parts of a whole than we realize, right? There's that very atomic view. And we've talked a little bit about uh, state of mind or share, like, a, like, but probably more accurately, you know, you're talking about shared states of mind, like the, the whole is sharing the experience. Um, I think for, you know, and my audience tends to, I think, be a little bit more casual, but curious. Can you describe mm -hmm. that uh, kind of intersubjectivity, that shared state of mind a little bit more? Because I know even for me, and I, I've had a little bit of experience with that, but it's it's difficult to put that into Western language. I think that's part of yeah. <laughs> part of our blindness, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the example I, I give, and actually, I think I use it in the paper, what we're talking about is think about a big sporting event like maybe the Super Bowl is a good example and how um, if it goes well, if it's a good event, it's an incredibly like moving experience, right? It's an emotional experience. And hopefully it's an emotional experience for the fans, for the players, you know, for, for everybody. And a couple of things are relevant, right? First of all, think of all the different elements you need to arrive at this moving experience, right? So you need, for example, the players, right? You need elite athletes who play really well. You need referees. You may need, if it's the Super Bowl, maybe like cheerleaders, the media to report, to, to sort of build up certain things. Maybe you need a crowd to motivate the players, to bring that sense of noise and atmosphere. Um, but the result potentially, right, is this really memorable moving occasion. To, to, to your question, right? So what is, what is that actual experience? Well, I'm not sure that it needs to be a single experience that everybody feels the same thing. Yes. But I think what, what, it, what it should be, what it has to be, I guess, is some version of that experience of satisfaction, delight, exhilaration, feeling alive, which is created through the participation in that event. Um, so maybe, you know, players feel something slightly different, maybe a, an amazing sense of pride and satisfaction, say winning the Super Bowl, the fans feel something different, maybe elation is a different feeling to, to intense feeling of pride or satisfaction. But the idea is everybody participates and everybody takes away from the event and the interaction. Um, so, Which results in social cohesion. Exactly. Yes, right? yeah, which you mentioned in your paper. It's, yeah. 
Exactly. And if, if you know that by taking part in these interactions, you can obtain these kind of felt experiential goods, then it motivates you to be a cooperative party to that interaction, right? So it's interesting that, that in a lot of ethics, we talk about obligation, right? They're obliged to do the right thing, right? And, and then if you, if you know about the history of ethics, one of the problems is, well, you know, how, how, how can we be motivated to do the right thing, right? It can be very oppressive and we just couldn't be bothered to be a nice person and so on. But if, like in this example, doing the right thing is integrated with certain kinds of positive experience, then that ethical motivation question doesn't really come up in, with the same force. Yeah. Um, you know, one more thing to mention this point, you know, no theory is perfect, right? So there is a famous example by a philosopher called Gilbert Harmon, who talks about a bunch of, he used the word youth, like young people, whatever, who set fire to a cat, right? And they really enjoy setting fire to this cat. You know, what a great laugh, like, you know, what a great time. And I'm sorry, that's the thing so is, graphic, but yeah, I'm tracking with you. <laughs> it's a good example. And of course, the thing is that they enjoy it, right? The, the, the young people really enjoy it. It's a buzz. It, it, it gives them like a real thrill, right? Yeah. I don't think the cat enjoys it very much. So you know, there is this, this sort of proper problem of, well, what about experiences where, you know, people who take part can really enjoy it, but it can be a sort of violent, na nasty experience. So, you know, there are some questions. I mean, some things we can say about that. For example, you know, it has to be everybody, every sentient being taking part in the experience has to... Mm have these kind of some version of these positive experiences so that the cat obviously would be problematic or even we can just say maybe more realistically you know it's not meant to be a mark of what's like morally sufficient right like the necessary and sufficient conditions to be confident you've done the right thing right maybe it's just a framework by which to think about ourselves and social interactions you know we still need other moral norms like you know don't cause unnecessary pain, you know, and, and so on. Um, you know, but that, that doesn't invalidate the idea, right? Yeah. That, that just puts it in context. I, I love it. I actually, that was, uh, I mentioned earlier, I had a semi troll question. I was trying not to like, I, I don't like gotcha moments in interviews. And I was going to ask specifically about that because the first thing I read when you're talking about the, about human flourishing and a good society and you define them as well-regulated desire and social cohesion, my uh, my brain immediately jumped to him like, well, Nazi Germany had some of those things. Do you know what I mean? And it's like you had social cohesion and you had people who were moving towards a goal. And uh, and I was going to ask you how you would answer that. And that they answered it perfectly. Um, uh, <laughs> did not think of the cat example, but obviously that's like very similar, right? It's like you obviously have shared cruelty as well. Um, but I love the idea of using this almost more as a, a tool set than like a, a complete uh, metaphysical framework for ethics or meta ethics, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, I think another um, aspect of this is, um, you know, I think the Confucius are very focused on like the local social world, yeah. whatever that means, right? Not sort of universality, not all of humanity. Uh, all of humankind. Interesting. Okay. And, you know, that, that, that can lead them to some problems. Um, you know, you might have heard that the strong emphasis on family could be a problem. The kind of 
you know, favoring your family over others, putting the family first can lead to conflicts between you know, public duties, duties to strangers and commitment to family. That's not just a Confucian problem. That's a problem for all of us, <laughs> yeah. right? But, but maybe the, pro the Confucians are more strongly orientated towards the family, which could, could create problems for those who, who want a kind of universal egalitarianism. Mm. But I think an interesting answer, which again, it's not a, it's not a knockdown response, sure. but it's just that, you know, maybe a lot of, when we ask the questions about human flourishing and how to have a good life, maybe it's just the fact that a lot of, a substantial part of the answer will be bound up in the kind of the local social world in which we live. Yeah. Right. You know, friends and family and, and if, and these kinds of local social interactions and that maybe there is a sense in which these naturally do take a kind of priority. I don't want to overdo it because obviously we don't want to be heartless towards strangers and distant others, but it may be that kind of the basic material of a good life may be very much these kinds of everyday social interactions, which traditionally philosophy hasn't really focused on, right? It's been much more lofty and abstract in terms of general rules and norms and quite abstract accounts of the good life, a lot like Aristotle, yeah. right? Very sort of general account of, of human character. Yes. Um, that, and that's where, I mean, you mentioned one of the things, I think the quote is, for example, prudence becomes important. And you define it here as short-term pleasures, deferring short-term pleasures for more satisfying pleasures in the longer term. But there's also that idea of prudence as uh, dealing with a local particular context. Am I reading that correctly? Is that is that similar, or am I just way off there? Um, yeah, that, that that's that's part of it, and that's also part of the answer to, to the last point. Another answer to the last point we were talking yeah. about, which is um, another kind of so criticism would be: well, isn't it just like a version of hedonism, right? Where it's basically saying everybody wants to be happy, just make yourself happy, you know, great. And what I try to say in the paper, because I think it's true to the Confucian uh, tradition, is um, this is clearly not just a simple notion of pleasure, right? It's not just a case of make yourself happy. It's trying to, I think the Confucians are trying to articulate a complex sort of social situation or even a complex cognitive state where you're trying to balance, respond to and balance different inputs to both retain your own notion of delights, maybe a, a version of pleasure, but also have that responsibility which recognizes you know other people will have similar claims want similar kinds of experiences so it creates a kind of ethical task right where yeah of course it's life is partly about you know comforting experiences like, like pleasure and delight but maybe the ethical task is to kind of create situations interactions events where those who take part can all have a share in those kinds of experiences, which adds a, a much more complex practical layer to, to this idea. It's not just a simple notion of, you know, pursuing what clearly makes yourself happy. Yes. I, I, so a couple of things. One is uh, you've mentioned the idea of inequality exists regardless. And I know that, I mean, I have a Western audience, right? Like people are going to be like, Ugh, you know, <laughs> But uh, one one way that I've heard this framed, and I want to know if you're comfortable with this, is instead of using the term uh, inequality, using the term asymmetrical. So, for instance, even with the Super Bowl example, like the the experience that of players who have put a lot more work into 
uh, the Super Bowl than the than the fans do have a very different experience than the fans do. But it's a it, even though it's different, it is at the same time shared because they are parts of one whole. Yeah, yeah, I, that that's it, right? It doesn't have to be certainly the, the experiential side. It doesn't have to be a kind of strict equality either in terms of the experience itself, the emotion, if you like, or even like the intensity, the, the degree to which it's felt. Um, I would also say as well to, to, to your point about, you know, inequality and asymmetry, um, the Confucians have various things that they, they say about this, right? Which is when we say inequality, just like you said, we don't mean some kind of really morally worrying notion of exploitation right. and, you know, this kind of power imbalance, which, which can exist and can exist in all, all sorts of locations and places for sure. Yeah. But I think their idea is, you know, when we say parents and children are unequal in some sense, or there's an asymmetrical relationship, we don't mean that in some kind of insidious sense of, and therefore all children are going to like lord it over. So all parents will lord it over their children because <laughs> they're so powerful. Right? Oh man! What, what we what, what we mean for the Confucians are things like, well, at least the traditional answer is, children should. So love parents, have a sense of gratitude, maybe even obey parents. And again, not obey just in this blind obedience sense, but maybe because if if you pay attention to what parents say, if you think about what they say, then potentially you'll learn more, right? Yeah. Than if you just kind of say, oh, whatever, whatever. If you actually listen to what they're trying to say, think about whether it's reasonable. You know, there, there are ways in which a notion of obedience isn't just blind obedience. So that, that's the child side. And the parent side may be, you know, a sense of responsibility, right? I have to look after my child. I have to provide for them. So there may be kind of inequality or asymmetry, but it's it's potentially benign, right? It's potentially a natural state of affairs, but which can lead to sort of both sides doing, I suppose you call it morally right things, or at least, you know, sort of, sort of um, wholesome positive things, such as, you know, having a sense of gratitude, having a sense of responsibility to care, Um so yeah, I think you're right that it's it's a sensitive topic to talk about inequality, but I think the Confucians who who don't have you know, any any sort of insight into 20th century liberal <laughs> thought will just say yeah, but it's just a fundamental fact of, of human life. And I'm not entirely endorsing that view. I'm just yeah. saying that that that's the kind of very honest starting position. Well, and you have to you can't be anachronistic, you know, reading back and be like, well, they should have had answers for today's problems. They were addressing their problems at the time, right? Um, something you, uh, I, I, as I'm hearing this, I feel a lot in our society as our side, society becomes more pluralistic as our society, um, cult, like globalism increases. We have different cultures growing together. I feel that more time is taken up by negotiation. And one of the things that Confucianism gives us is a moral value to ritual, which saves us both time, effort, and uh, the possibility of bad negotiation because there's there's value in just the ritual itself in guiding us into these uh, shared states of uh, moral valuable uh, or these valuable moral shared states of mind. If that makes sense, am I am I tracking with you there, or is that uh, if I'm saying something inappropriate to what you're saying? I'd I'd love to know. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I, I think. Obviously, rituals are a very important part of Confucian thought, which we haven't explicitly mentioned so far. But I think it's consistent with this idea of, like we talked about the sporting 
yes. event, yeah. right? That, that example. You know, you could think of that as as a site in which there are all sorts of rituals are played out. All right? the time. You sing the national anthem, there's halftime Super Bowl show. So so the Confucian would point out, and, and various 20th century sort of Confucian scholars have said this, you know, how important ritual is to human life, mm-hmm. how much structure it provides. So that again, although some people will have potentially a negative view of ritual, at least the word that it associates with, you know, right. having to attend religious service as a child every Sunday and, you know, kind of fussy, kind of troublesome kind of little rituals and etiquette you have to do. Obviously the Confucians have a much more positive view and, and there has been lots of work done on what's good about ritual. And to just give you one example, um, the, the first thing is for the Confucians to come back to this idea of a positive sort of shared social interaction. It can send all sorts of messages, right? If you don't use ritual, like if you go to a funeral, you know, you try to greet the, the bereaved at the funeral and you don't really know what to say, you might wind up saying something, you know, a bit awkward and makes them feel worse, you know, and, you know, whatever it might be. But if, if there's a ritually accepted way of expressing your condolences, you know, then there's an easy way in which you can kind of connect with that person. You know, so there's one way in which ritual kind of regulates our interactions, like smooths the edges and stuff. Yeah. Well, it also does things. Like, oh, yeah. I was going to say, Go it's also, it allows other people to participate. You'll often see people saying the words along with you, maybe not as loud when you have those shared uh, prayers or eulogies or whatever it is. So it becomes more of a shared experience, whereas you can't do that yeah. if someone's <laughs> extemporaneously, uh, you know, shooting off the <laughs> off the cuff. Um, uh, forgive me, just to uh, uh, <laughs> allow me to indulge you for a second. I so my background, uh, I'm a devout Christian, came from a very conservative, like independent fundamental Baptist, and one of the things that I've come to appreciate, like I grew up with, if you wrote out your prayers beforehand, you weren't really praying. And you should never use other people's prayers. And some of the prayers I heard extemporaneously, in fact, the majority of them were very poor. And one of the things I've come to really appreciate is exactly this notion, right? Like that's it's something that we do together and it's something that is well thought out. And it's a very, it's a very Western uh, kind of distortion, honestly, that uh, if it's just extemporaneous, it's somehow more authentic. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's yeah, no, that, that that's a great point. I mean, that you know, th- there's another area of, of sort of research in contemporary Chinese thought about genius and originality, mm. right? And t- just exactly to your point, right? We tend to think of creativity as being this act of absolute creativity, right? Nobody in history has ever done this before, right? And that, and we attach the highest value to that kind of outstanding genius-like originality, right? Yeah. But, but like you say, first of all that obscures the number of fails, right, on the way to try and get there, right, and these terrible <laughs> individual efforts that, that, that go wrong. But, but, but also, in, in, in the confusion side of things, that originality or creativity is more about the kind of the appropriate and sometimes creative reworking of what's already there. Right? Yeah. So it's kind of taking tradition and it's adding or subtracting or just tweaking it in some way that that's kind of meets present needs, which is also creative. But avoid some of the pitfalls that, that that you mentioned about, you know, just trying to be too original, too creative, you know, not having any sort of precedence to work with. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting for me to see the Western idea of authorship break down. I was talking to Dr. Braver about this in a previous interview, how AI, like I personally felt this and I've, <laughs> my background's in philosophical hermeneutics. You'd think I would understand this better. But uh, I remember being very bothered by AI creating scripts because I'm like, that's cheating. They're not real authors. And it's like, what does that even mean? And that's just, uh, it's interesting to see what's baked into even, you know, my, uh, my worldview and that I've had to work with. So I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting off topic, but it's just really, it's really fascinating to me to see these alternative views and, uh, the value in them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, not, none of these things are above critique and, when I present sort of some of the Confucian ideas, like the importance of tradition to the Confucians, right? They, they do think that, you know, having a sense of your own tradition, it may be important psychologically, but it also enables you to deal with the present, right? You have these resources of, well, what did we do in the past when these problems arose? And of course, you know, the, the European enlightenment, there are all sorts of reasons why there are some problems with just relying on tradition, but still, you know, there are lots of thoughtful things we can say about the importance of tradition, which you know, may, maybe get lost in, in the rush to kind of see tradition as, again, something potentially restrictive and oppressive. Absolutely. Um, one of the other questions I wanted to ask, uh, you mentioned there's a threefold uh, process, uh, poetry, you know, in, in learning delight in poetry, and then learning ritual and learning music. Um, is there something, are, is that just a good model? Is that uh, a good way to proceed? Is there something fundamental to those three steps? So is that is that more of a fundamental universal human experience thing? Or is that just one good way for people to achieve this kind of shared intersubjective uh, state of delight? Yeah, so that, that actually comes, it's a famous passage from the Analects or the Alex of Confucius, the canonical book of, of the Confucian traditions, you might even say like the Bible of Confucianism, because it's the, the the text which so much goes back to. Um, it's sort of passage 8.8, so book 8, um, passage number 8. And I think it can be translated in different ways, but it says something like, um, aroused through poetry, established through ritual, and completed through music. And I also work on a, a, a 20th century Chinese a thinker, intellectual called Li Zihou. He, he actually passed away recently, but he um, wrote a lot about that passage. And he sees it as a, a kind of a blueprint for an idea of self-cultivation in which the goal is to be able to create the kinds of social events we're, we're talking about. And I think the, the idea is poetry is the first stage, and that should be understood quite, quite broadly to an include things like literature, um, maybe even all sorts of written writing and, and text and so on, that there's a way in which you acquire the kind of knowledge you need in order to interact with the world. Ritual is kind of the second stage. And again, maybe not just ritual, like we think about formal rituals, like going to a, a, you know, a church or a synagogue or a wedding or a funeral, but like, a bit like we talked about, but more general notions like etiquette, ceremony, even habit, maybe the way people habitually interact, even though that's not recognized as some kind of formal ritual. The way in which 
when we take part in all, when, when we engage in and learn all of these kind of ritualized, habitual ways of interacting, we become more able to kind of move the world around. So, so, you know, think about greetings, right? When you, um, when you're young, maybe you just know to try and shake people's hands and then you travel around the world and you see some people bow, some people make the a kind of various signs of respect, right? So Ch- Chinese notions and, you require more tools, right? More more ways in which you can respond to the situation, you know? And again, this idea of ritual and ceremony, maybe that's what it means. We learn all the kind of social grammar as we go along, we acquire more and more of it. So in any given situation, we're more able to come up with something that is in some sense, the appropriate response, right? That's, that's the second stage. So, so the first one's like conceptual, intellectual kind of learning about poetry, literature, maybe even history, history texts. Then you've got the practical one of kind of ritual and kind of mastering social interactions, customs, habits, and so on. And maybe the third stage completed through music is, is, I read that slightly metaphorically. It doesn't literally mean you become a musician. It just means like the the example we talked about at the start, this idea of like the the musical jam or Mm. the large classical orchestra, how you learn to blend things together to produce a certain effect, right? When you listen to, you know, a great piece of music that's carefully put together and composed and, you know, ordered and so on, um, it creates these effects in you, right? You have these, you know, great emotional responses to great music. Um, And maybe that's like the highest stage. That's the outcome of this process of learning self-cultivation, right? That started with, um, Poetry went through ritual and culminated in this kind of musical sensibility, right? That it doesn't literally mean making music per se, but it means that 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 same kind of sensibility, that same sensitivity to the world as if you were making a great musical uh, production. Because the important thing with rhythm isn't the mathematical construct of it. It's the it's the social side of it that you are working together, the participatory, let the instruments are in sync, whether whatever that beat is, you can actually adjust that. And we see that even at the highest level with jazz, where they are freestyling together, which blows my mind. I can't, I can't even keep a beat (laughs) on my own. Um, And so, I mean, is that idea of rhythm, it almost seems like that music has that, um, you have something very personal with poetry where you are accepting the intersubjective state, the in, like you are accepting other people's shared my uh, state of mind. Yeah. And then there's kind of this intermediary passage with uh, ritual where you're starting to understand the rules of the game. And it ends with you participating in the inter in intersubjectivity in this shared state with everybody. Is that, is that one way to read it? Is that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, I would start as well for, for music, which is kind of interesting. I mean, I'm talking about it quite, quite sort of metaphorically as a general process, right. which you can take from music. Like, how do you produce good music? You can take some of those skills and sensibilities and put them into the world of everyday social interaction, or even you might say ethics, yeah. right? Um, we should also note that the Confucians are sometimes, but they have an interest in music, which isn't just that kind of abstract kind of. Uh, they actually think that music can directly influence people. So simple example, right? I I don't know if you're a musician. I I used to be, or occasionally and whatever. Anyway, minor notes, right? Minor keys, right? 
most people know that a minor key produces a certain kind of response. It's like sorrow, it's mournful. When people use minor keys in music, they're often evoking a little bit of like sorrow or sadness, right? So that, that is to say a particular kind of note produces a particular kind of emotion. Mm -hmm. And the Confucians have a lot of confidence about this, maybe more than is warranted given what we know about musical theory today. But basically they think that you can use music to directly generate certain emotional responses. So, for example, maybe sorrowful music produces a shared feeling of sorrow in everybody who's listening to it. There's maybe like, they talk about grand music that produces a feeling of like vastness in all those who listen to it. So, so in that very direct kind of causal sense, that's, you know, music can also create shared experiences, right? By certain notes producing certain emotional responses. And there's a... So that, that's just a very practical level at which, you know, again, this sort of, it all connects together because it's not just a metaphor. They actually think there's a causal pathway there. Yeah. And I think there's a certain connectedness, which I think is part of this whole discussion between spirit and body, where uh, you have in many ways a mental or spiritual, and I'm using these terms very loosely, phenomenon that it has, uh, you know, it, it's psychosomatic. It has uh, physical effects. Uh, I have a friend who every time he listens to Rachmaninoff's uh, piano concerto number two, he gets goosebumps. You know, I mean, and that's like, uh, and that's, I think most people feel something similar to that, you know, and they, there were studies about those kind of physical effects. And for, I think, uh, if I'm understanding what you're, uh, writing about here, that's very important that it's, it's, it's putting everybody in harmony, right? Not just, uh, with themselves, but also with others, yeah. which is why you use the, yeah, uh, you use the example of cooking. You know, like cooking, like you have to you have to work with the ingredients and different ingredients with different parts of the year makes a big difference. And how those ingredients taste, because like squash can be very different depending on when you pick it, uh, what time of year, how long it's been sitting out, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, it, it works at that level of um, how, how do you blend these ingredients, whether it's musical components or, or, or food. Um and also, you know, something I talk about in the paper a little bit is, is resonance, which I'm not an expert in the topic. I think it's, again, it's something that people are becoming interested in. But another level here, right, maybe connecting to music is, um, it, it is a fact, for example, that when people build large bridges, this is sort of, a, I don't know exactly how this relates, but it's an interesting fact. They often, bridges come to resonate, that is vibrate in some sense, the same frequency of the land to which they're attached. You know, that is in some sense, they come into sync with the landmass to which they attach. How this works, uh, we don't care. But the point is this idea of resonance of somehow resonating with what's around you is actually a theme in, in Confucian thought. And again, it's another theme to, to be developed and unpacked because, you, you know, it, However, resonance works as a vehicle. That that's again part of this idea, right? That we can come into sync, some sort of coordination with those around us in ways that's mutually beneficial to all, all involved. Is that idea of harmony with nature? I mean, I'm assuming, but you know, uh, you know, that's dangerous, especially in philosophy. But I'm assuming, like, I'm assuming that they have that harmony with nature as part of the, this ideal, or um, maybe not so much. So, I, I mean, I mean, 
Y- yes and no, actually. I mean, okay. one of the sort of so influential Confucian texts is to think of the, the universe as a cosmos. And in the Confucian tradition, you know, for better or for worse, there isn't a belief in a, in a created deity, right? That sort of created the world and we make sense of the world via a conception of, of that deity. Rather, there's this idea that humans and the cosmos are kind of co-creators, that humans influence the cosmos by contributing to history and, and great deeds and so on. Mm. And the cosmos influences humans by, for example, the way that the natural climate works, you know, in, in winters and summers, and humans have to adjust to, to the cosmos. Um, so, so at that level, again, there is this, this notion of, of integration, of, of coherence. Um, so in that sense, yes, there is a kind of unity of humans and nature, harmony, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but often in the Confucians, it's not so much about, you know, the, the countryside or, or, or the seasons. It's this sort of almost like religious idea that the largest thing that there is, is something we, which we are sort of part of and it's part of us and we mutually individual and cosmos kind of mutually interacts and creates. Um, Taoism has a more explicit uh, accounts of um, connection with the natural world in the, in the sense maybe that, that you mean in terms of, you know, um, responding to the seasons, like farming at the right times, plowing at the right times, harvesting at the right times. Okay. Yep. Sorry. I mean, this is literally, obviously this is not my, my uh field so this is really fascinating thank you um uh kind of as we wrap up here um one thank you so much for being on uh i did want to ask oh yeah um so we'd start off by saying how can you lead a good life specifically you know what's the confusion answer to that uh if you could give like a just a short summary of like what what are the insights, what are the unique contributions that someone can take away from this discussion today that would help them live the good life? To a Western audience, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the ways I sort of frame this issue in some other writing on this that I've done is, you know, we often think about the good life as being, um, we, we think very carefully about the shape our own life should take, right? So... Sometimes when people are young and they have a very specific set of goals, right? By the time they're 21, they want a degree. By the time they're you know, 26 or whatever, they want a PhD. By the time they're 30, they want a really well-paying job. They want a six-figure salary or you know, maybe even be a millionaire, right? And they, they think of their lives in terms of specific goals that they want to achieve. And achieving those goals means satisfaction, right? And in a sense, it's very goal orientated right there's a clear sense of wanting to achieve certain things that will bring satisfaction and that's fine who's just going to argue with that but maybe what this confucian account says is the idea of like a meaningful life or a good life isn't necessarily one in which we have these kind of goals and aims and we instrumentally reason towards them and figure out how to achieve them rather we think about life in terms of how every day consists of a certain number of, like a rolling series of social interactions. We may not know before the day begins who, who's going to be involved in those interactions, what those interactions will be. But 
maybe if for each of those interactions that we move through in the course of a day, we can achieve this kind of quality of interaction that we're talking about, the kind of kind of visceral sense of satisfaction or delight or joy that comes from successful interaction. And we do that for each of these rolling series of interactions that we're involved in, and then the next day the same, and the next day the same. You know, then, then maybe this is a picture of a good life, which, you know, is a good life, but it's just not that same life where it was very, you know, I have to have this, I have to achieve these goals. Otherwise, you know, if I don't fulfill my bucket list, then, you know, what, what have I done? You know, it's a kind of a challenging notion that maybe the good life is, you know, a bit more below the radar, right? It, it's it's not about big dramatic things. It's more about the quality of interaction because those social interactions make up so much of your life, right? That That's the idea that they are the, the, the raw substance of human life, you know, not, you know, philosophers living in a cave, thinking about the true meaning of existence, right? That's really on the outside. Yeah. But nor necessarily that modern idea of being very, you know, having this plan, this goal to, to realize, right? This big practical aim that you want to bring about. So I think the Confucian account of the good life, as, as I try to present it at least, I think it's an interesting alternative, right? It sort of says maybe that the, the, the best life is one which pays attention to these kind of inevitable rolling series of interactions you're going to be involved in. Thank you for that answer. Um... One, very inspiring, very thought-provoking for me. As I'm thinking through this, there's almost a stoic quality to this idea that by situating ourselves within the whole we and giving up what we think of as control, we actually gain back more control over the good life, right? Because a lot of that goal setting is often affected by things that we don't have control over. And so I, I, I think that is a real challenge to our, our contemporary culture. So... Um, really, go ahead. I, th I think that's true. Although I would just add that it's not, it, it is in a sense retaining control because as we sort of talked about, it is a very skilled process, right? Yeah. It's not just, um, just like rocking up to things and hoping it goes well, right? It's, it's a process of learning and cultivation. Yes. That means the person has the skills and the sensibility to, 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 to bring about these qualities of interaction. So, so it's a little bit different from like a purely sort of stoic notion of, you know, I can't control it. I just accept it. Um, but, but I do take your point yeah. that it's different from this more active kind of aggressive notion of how do I achieve this, this goal that I really want to achieve. I, I'm glad you said that because you're, you're very right. It's that we are constantly working on our skill set to deal with individual rolling interactions and that we have control over right now, instead of worrying so much about the future, but that it is, it is a skill set that we develop. Um, and that's yeah. even like, that's where the threefold, you know, poetry, ritual and um, music comes in, like that sort of blueprint. And like, like you said, it, it sounds like there are, you could have multiple blueprints, but they, they should follow something similar where you're moving into this kind of shared intersubjectivity. It's a very social thing. Um, Dr. Lambert, thank you so much. That, that was, uh, I, I could talk about this stuff all day, but I want to be conscious of your time. Uh, and so uh, thank you for, for coming on. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope the listeners find it interesting. Oh, I'm sure they will. This has been great. <laughs>